Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This is the annual ATP preseason top 10 prediction. It is a prediction of what the top 10 will look like approximately 11 months from now when the 2024 season uh, comes to an end. Happy holidays, everybody. Releasing this on Christmas. I don't know if that's a bad idea or not, but I uh, figure some of you people will uh, will be traveling and will be happy, uh, and others of you will just catch it when your uh, Christmas festivities are over. Uh, some of you are not celebrating, um, such as myself. So let us get into it. Uh, also, what starts this video is always a look back on last year to see how wrong was Gil. So this is it. This is what I predicted in the top 10 preseason uh, prediction last year. I had Djokovic 1, Alcaraz 2, Nadal 3. The parentheses next to the players show the change in ranking from how we entered last year. So uh, just for an example, Djokovic came into this year, although this is kind of hard to believe, five in the world. So my prediction that he would finish one, that's why there's a plus four next to his name. I thought Medvedev would go up three spots, finish number four. Rude, two-spot decline into number five. Titipas down two spots to number six. FAA down one to seven. Sinner up seven spots to eight in the world. Runa, uh, two-spot jump to number nine. And Fritz, one bump down to number 10. So those were my predictions. Now on the right side, you'll see the actual, the actual year-end top 10. These are what the rankings look like right now, today on, well, I'm recording this on December 24th. So uh, I got a lot right here. Djokovic, correct. Alcaraz, correct. They finished one and two in that order. Medvedev, I predicted a bounce back for Medvedev. I was right about that, even though I got zero credit in YouTube comment sections for being right about that. Medvedev was even better, though, than I expected by one spot. So I missed Medvedev by one spot. Sinner, again, I was directionally correct. I had him going up seven spots. He ended up making an even bigger leap than, than I thought. Um, but I'm pretty happy with the prediction I made. Sinner finishes four. Uh, Rublev was a, a miss by me. I didn't have him in. He finished number five. Titipas, I was correct again. Uh, miraculously, three straight years now, I have gotten Tsitsipas' year-end ranking correct before the year began. 
Uh, it's been four in the world the last two years before this one, and then this year I got him at number six. Zverev coming off the injury, I left him out of the top ten. Zverev uh, proved me wrong on that. Finishes number seven. Runa uh, pretty much almost got him right. Had him at number nine. He finished number eight. Uh, Herkoch I left outside of the top ten. Herkoch finished number nine. And Taylor Fritz who I predicted to finish number 10, did indeed predict number 10. So I got four correct. Uh, my big misses were Nadal, who got injured. And, you know, every year, usually two players in the top 10 about to get injured and then don't have really a chance to make the top 10. So this year it was Nadal and Somewhat Felix, but honestly, there it wasn't really about injury with Felix. Uh, the year before, it was Berrettini and Zverev. Um, I was obviously, you know, directionally correct with Rude and Felix because for both of them, I did predict they would decline in the rankings, but their declines were way steeper than I could have imagined, especially in the case of FAA. Uh, so, so I missed on on those two who I had in the top ten. And uh, and the, the Zverev thing was interesting because if you go back and watch my logic on Zverev, it was actually pretty spot on. I thought he'd struggle for about three months, and he did. But I guess it's easy to forget what a long season this is and how quickly you can get right back in the mix with a couple of quarterfinal or better results at slams, which Zverev did manage this year. So he got back in. And uh, Rublev was my worst read. That's the one that I really regret because I was enticed by the ceiling potential of a few others and I didn't value Andre's reliability enough. It's the second year in a row that I've been wrong on Rublev. Uh, he's also, you know, made some improvements this year that I did not foresee at the time. So enough about last year. I'm pretty happy with my performance, all things considered. Uh, let's get to this year. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on a couple of players that I consider like honorable, honorable mentions. I do want to say their names, on the video, but frankly, I didn't consider them put I didn't consider putting them in the top 10. The next group of players will be players who I strongly did consider putting in the top 10, and I left them out. And I'll tell you why. And then we'll get to the top 10. All right. So beginning with, as I said, the honorable, honorable mentions, uh, that starts with Matteo Berrettini. He was top 10 three years in a row until 2021. Uh, he's only 27 years old, but he just seems a lot older than that. Two years of decline in a row for Berrettini. And even if he's finally healthy for a full year, I just couldn't put him into the top 10. And uh, frankly, it wasn't much of a consideration for me. Nick Kyrgios is in this group of players. I left him out of my top 10 last year as an honorable mention because I do think he had the level in 2022. The reason I left him out last year was... You know, it was really the first time, the one year where we saw the effort and the health come together. And I just couldn't assume that was going to happen again. And it didn't. So, you know, going into next year, my confidence in his body holding up is even lower than it was going into last year. Felix Ojeh-Aliassime is also in this group of players. He did have a year-end six just two years ago, and he is young. But there are enough holes and weaknesses in his game, which includes the mental side, honestly, uh, for me to believe that next year will be something in between the struggles that we saw last year and the breakthrough that we saw two years ago. But that 
the 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 in between for me is not a top ten season. Three players who I also want to mention here, and I want to group them together: Francis Tiafo, Tommy Paul, Alex Dimonor. All of them need to be mentioned because they're pretty close right now. They are not far outside of the top ten. But I also think all of them are pretty close to their max, and I'm keeping all of them out for now. And lastly, Arthur Fees. He'll get there at some point. I'm pretty confident in that. He has the physicality to do it ahead of schedule, but I don't know if the technical skills are enough to do it ahead of schedule. I just think next year to consider Fees as a top 10 breakthrough candidate, just a little bit too early in my opinion. And with that, we will get to the honorable mentions, the players who I legitimately considered picking inside my top 10. There are five of them. First one is Grigor Dimitrov. Folks have correctly pointed out that with some better draw luck at slams this year, Dimitrov could have easily finished with a 2023 top 10 spot. Now, while I want to look at that, assume the luck is going to turn around and kind of do a one plus one equals Dimitrov's going to be top 10 next year, I can't do it. The pattern of Grigor Dimitrov's career suggests that some sort of health issue or downturn is probably coming. And, you know, for me, I would need an argument that, well, he's different now. Something has changed at this point in his career. That's what I would need to see. I don't see that. You know, has anything in his game changed so dramatically to the point where you can say he's unlocked something new? He's certainly not any younger. He's only got one top 10 finish in his career. And yeah, it would be really gratifying to see it again as, you know, he's holding up way better than everybody else in his generation. And he deserves massive kudos for that. But top 10 finish next year, I can't say it's likely and I can't predict it. Also landing in the honorable mentions category is Ben Shelton. Shelton's serve should theoretically give him a pretty high floor for his career moving forward, especially now that he's incorporated more variety into it. I think it's one of the better serves in the game. But I also believe that the rest of his game will continue to cause some inconsistencies as he matures as a player. He's spectacular, he's explosive, but he can also be erratic and wasteful. And I expect some great weeks and some bad weeks this season. If all goes to plan, I'll have him in the top 10 predictions next year, but I think this year is too soon. Honorable mention to Casper Rude. Yeah, after a disappointing 2023 where I, I thought he showed some mental and some technical cracks in his game. I understand a little bit, I guess, him being burnt out for the first couple months of the season. It took him a while to get things going. Then he had the highlight at Roland Garros and made, made the final. What was the most disappointing thing for me about Rude's season is how after that final, instead of that being a springboard for moderate success for the rest of the year, instead the bad habits and issues that were plaguing him in the beginning of the year just came back to start biting him again throughout the North American hardcourt swing and the indoor hardcourt post-US Open stretch, which is not to say that Rude was making a lot of errors and playing sloppy. Uh, the reason he was struggling was because he was playing too safe and allowing his opponents to inflict damage onto him. 
So heading into next year, I do expect that his forehand, it's such a great clay court weapon, is going to carry him to a lot of clay court success. But on the other surfaces, I'm kind of back to a place where I look at his game, the serve, it doesn't really give him a lot of easy looks and easy points. Uh, you can feel pretty comfortable playing his backhand still. And at this point, I'm a little bit concerned that the hardcourt results that we saw in 2022 are going to end up being a little bit of an outlier instead of something that he can repeat year after year after year. I'm also not exactly sure what he's working on right now or where he's going to get better. So I'm just not predicting a full bounce back season for Root at this point. Taylor Fritz, also an honorable mention. Fritz did a really good job, and this is going to sound sarcastic, and it's not. He did a good job at beating up on lower-ranked players last year, not taking a lot of surprising losses. Unfortunately, when he did lose to lower-ranked players, uh, they have tended to be at the slams, and that's been the main area that I think Taylor needs to make some corrections and you know just try to... Uh, vault over whatever mental hurdle has been bothering him, which maybe he started to do at last year's U.S. Open. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there's also just not enough versatility in his game to find enough different ways to win points against top 10 players. I do like his work ethic, but I think he's mostly done improving. And there are a few guys who I think can leapfrog Fritz, even if he doesn't necessarily decline. Karen Hachinov is another honorable mention for me. Uh, similar to Grigor Dimitrov, there is some really simple logic that suggests uh, a top 10 placement for Hachinov as far as predictions are concerned. Just that he's due for positive regression considering the injury he suffered this year where you know he really missed Roland Garros through to the U.S. Open where he lost first round because he wasn't quite at his best at that point. So uh, he missed a lot of time. And if he didn't get injured last year, it's very likely he would have finished top 10. I mean, he was 11 in the world after Paris. Unfortunately, I just can't get there for him this year. I do think he plays smarter tennis than he used to, much more consistent, willing to rely on his physicality. And I don't think that his super impressive best of five set resume that he's compiled over the last two, three years is any kind of coincidence. But on that same token, I also think that his best of five prowess has combined with draw luck at a couple of these majors that have led to this perfect storm, allowing Hachinov to do things like make two major semifinals in a row. And I do, do I think he is going to continue to do that? I, I don't. I don't think that's going to continue to happen for him. So I project him to finish at his second highest year-end ranking of his career. I have him going down with a year-end number 12. Again, his best ever year is number 11. For me, this is not a negative prediction for Hachinov, uh, but it's also not a prediction for his first top 10 finish. Couldn't quite get there. My next honorable mention is probably the biggest wild card of the bunch, maybe the biggest surprise of the bunch, but something I really believe in, and that is Jack Draper. Last year, the question was, can Draper stay healthy? And the answer was once again, no. He only played 12 tour events all year, three challengers. So obviously, in light of that, the health is still a question. But I do think that this might be the year. I don't know. Uh, he did have a healthy offseason, finally, to build up his body. And this is really important. 
you need this time uh, in the gym, especially once you know physically you've reached the age that you're ready to fill out your body. Uh, you just need some uninterrupted time to do that hard work in the in the preseason that's going to set you up for success to be healthy all year. And if you're wondering, Gil, what happened last year, he got two separate viruses in December, and from there he was playing catch-up. So look, if this is his first healthy year, which I just have a feeling it will be, I have all the faith in the world in his game. His serve is a weapon. He's comfortable in every part of the court. His backhand is phenomenal, especially for a lefty. His movement is there. The worst thing you can say about his game is that he struggles a bit finishing with his forehand. But even to say that, his forehand overall has some really good qualities to it. A lot of RPMs, good consistency. So if that's the worst thing about your game, you're in pretty good shape. I seriously considered predicting a top 10 for Jack Draper. Uh, obviously, just the body of work doesn't really give you enough uh, in the form of evidence for me to really make that leap with so many other great candidates here to make the top 10. And with that, we have made it. We have arrived. We have reached the promised land. It is time for the top 10. Coming in at number 10 is by far the biggest mystery of any player heading into next year. It is the one and only Rafael Nadal. He is undoubtedly the only player who could win Roland Garros and also not finish top 50 in the world. And both are legitimately believable outcomes for his 2024 season. That makes predicting where he's going to finish obviously pretty difficult. Uh, but let's just start here. We'll assume Nadal stays healthy. He's put in all this work uh, to really theoretically reach that goal. I mean, if you boil it down to what are Rafa's ambitions for this year, it's really just to play a full year healthy. Uh, he said he does not want to end his career in a press conference. He wants to end it on a match court. So... With our fingers crossed, we are going to say that Nadal stays healthy all year. That said, we're also going to assume there's a tangible decline in his movement. That's not guaranteed, but I also think it's kind of a logical place to go given not only his age, but the injury, the abductor hip injury he's coming off of, uh, which is obviously a, a pretty, or was a pretty debilitating long-term injury. So how good is Nadal? If he stays healthy, but there's a tangible decline in his movement, I still think he wins a ton of matches with his ground stroke mastery, with his baseline prowess. He has it in him to be relentlessly offensive off the ground and do it as well as anyone. There might be some comparisons to, let's say, an Andy Murray at this point. And given the fact that Nadal is coming back uh, off this severe injury so late in his career, right? I would ask this question to anybody making Murray comparisons. What does Murray have that even resembles Nadal's forehand? Nothing. He just doesn't have it. So that kind of thing is a huge difference maker for Nadal. And like the overall ability to be offensive and be a great baseliner without necessarily the best movement is my case that Rafa is going to have a lot of success this year. Now, with that said, what's the reason I don't have him even higher other than maybe the injury risk actually factoring in a little bit here? There's other stuff, right? 
the main thing is I don't think he can beef up the serve enough to fully make up for a movement decline, like we've seen maybe some other players have the ability to do. At the end of the day, you look at someone with a tour average serve who might not defend all that well anymore, and that's a combination that's going to make things really, really hard on anybody. If anybody can you know, do some things to overcome it and still be a top 10 player, it's Nadal. But can you win majors if you don't defend well above average and you don't serve well above average? I, I That to me is hard to see. So that's why uh, I feel like 10 is a perfect spot for him. And uh, yeah, we're going to go with number 10, Rafael Nadal. Number nine is going to be Hubert Hurkacz. It took me a while for me to get here with Hurkacz. He proved me wrong last year. I did not think he would finish top 10. And uh, I was looking pretty correct for the first half of 2023 when Hurkacz was not playing very good tennis and was continuing a string that uh, Frank me just left, left me a little bit uninspired by his progress, dating back as far as when he made the Wimbledon semifinal in 2019. But while his baseline game stagnated for periods of time and maybe even regressed for short stints, his serving has continued to get better and better and better. And I feel like it's gotten to the point where if you force me to make a comparison here, I think Hercotch is a prime Raonich level server. And you know what he did in Shanghai is exhibit A. He served his butt off and won a Masters 1000 title where, you know, really nobody had an answer for his first serve just in isolation. And uh, that's a superpower. It's going to get you really, really far. So for Hercotch to be top 10, all he needs is just to be close to average from the baseline. It's not that high a bar. And now more than ever, I'm pretty confident he's going to be able to clear that bar because in the second half of last year, I saw him for the first time accelerating through his forehand consistently, making it so that his forehand is a threatening shot that is not necessarily going to betray him at the very worst moments in every single match. And he didn't do it for one week. He did it for about three months. So with that, plus the fact that he's already low-key had back-to-back top 10 finishes here, uh, I feel like he's just now ready to fulfill his potential, and I just can't resist Hercotch in this top 10 and coming in for me at number 9. At number 8 is the man whose top 10 prediction I have pinpointed the last three years. He is someone who is sure to spark a lot of discussion, as he did last year, and that is Stefanos Tsitsipas. Let me say this first, and I am predicting yet another decline for Tsitsipas coming into next year. But let me start by just saying there's a real strong argument in my head for Tsitsipas to have a bounce back year. And that argument is very simple. How can it be worse than last year? Last year, there were injury issues. There was instability and drama within his coaching box. Those two things definitely had an effect, but all of these things go down. It feels like a really down year for Tsitsipas overall after January, yet he still finishes six in the world. So now what happens? What happens next year if he is healthy all year? And if he does have stability and clarity in his camp? 
that's the argument for him bouncing back. Uh, and it was the same thing I said about Medvedev last year when I predicted a bounce back for Daniil, and I just listed all the things that went against him in, in 2021, um, or excuse me, in 2022, and simply argued it's not going to, all that stuff isn't going to happen again, right? All of this unlucky, unfortunate stuff will not repeat itself. So I completely understand if you feel that way about Tsitsipas. But for me, it's not quite apples to apples with Medvedev last year. It's a little bit different. And here's why I can't get to putting Tsitsipas back inside the top five where he's finished multiple seasons, including 2021 and 2022. Uh, mainly that is the concern I had coming into last year is still a concern as we speak now, which is that he's not competing quite as well, quite as consistently as he did when he was a younger player. That may sound very abstract. What do you mean when you say competing? I'm simply talking about the effort, the focus, and the resilience. Those three things, those are the specifics. When I'm watching him play tennis matches throughout the year, am I seeing all of those three things in spades every match? The answer is no. The injuries at this point, also a thing. Now he's had an elbow, He's had a right shoulder, and he's had a back all in the last 18 months. That's a lot of injuries in the last 18 months, starting to get concerned on that front. The other thing just has to do with the field and the way that everybody is playing him. And Alex Gruskin brought this up on our, our off-season show, which if you didn't see, I encourage everybody to go back and check that one out, uh, which is that everybody knows exactly how to play him now. Uh, and look, this isn't novel, this isn't new, but it's reached the point where Tsitsipas on tour is someone where, you know, everybody really respects his strengths and is also hyper aware of his weakness. And uh, the secret just couldn't possibly be more out that you have to serve his backhand, you have to target the backhand, and everybody wants a piece of that one-hander at this point. So people are playing him smart. I have physical questions. I have mental questions. I have Tsitsipas remaining a top eight player, but going down another two spots for the second year in a row. And now coming in at number seven is Andre Rublev. I don't know if Andre fans are going to be, you know, happy to see this like, yay, uh, Gil is seeing the light or if they're going to be like, crap, uh, it was really, it was really working well when he was not predicting him to finish top 10. Regardless, Rublev has been my blind spot for two years now doing this, and uh, I'm done underselling his ability to stay healthy. I'm done underselling his ability to play at a top 10 level on all three surfaces, and I'm done underselling his overall consistency. Uh, but this year, we also saw, in my opinion, the most enterprising Andre Rublev ever. He added to his team. He made real strides psychologically and showed up in some of the biggest matches playing his best tennis like we've never seen before. He also improved his second serve and looked just a hair quicker and faster around the court than he's ever looked. His ceiling is lower than some of these other guys because he doesn't move as well, because he doesn't return as well, and in some cases, in the case of some players, because he doesn't serve as well. That remains true. All of those things that have been said for the last three, four years. But his case to finish year-end number seven 
uh, it couldn't be more obvious. He's the reigning year-end five who's showing more desire to improve than ever. And he's a guy who absolutely defines reliability, consistency, and the idea that you know exactly what you're going to get. Andre Rublev, year-end top seven, prediction, lock it in. Coming in at number six is Alexander Zverev. Is this a positive prediction? Is this a negative prediction for Sasha? I don't even know at this point. Uh, I just feel sometimes like I don't know what to say about Zverev that I haven't been saying for about six years in a row now. He's been a similar player for a long time. Uh, yes, at times last year, I definitely saw him uh, trying to come forward more. I saw him uh, hitting his forehand bigger, maybe a little bit more often down the line. But I've seen flashes of that periodically throughout the stretch of time that I'm referring to. Uh, the question has always been, is he going to do those things effectively under pressure in really big matches, or is he going to kind of drift into his comfort zone, which isn't a terrible zone, but it's also a zone that allows top players uh, to pretty much play on their terms and doesn't really make any of the top guns uh, all that uncomfortable. Historically, that's been especially true at majors and best of five. Now, the caveat to all of this is, you know, Zverev has been a top eight player for, you know, these six years now. So uh, when I say he hasn't changed, I mean it. Um, so I don't know. Are you disappointed that there hasn't been more growth and that there's not more narrative excitement uh, you know, surrounding Zverev? Uh, maybe, uh, but also it's a little bit silly to take for granted how hard it is to go from tier two to tier one. And I've been at a place with, with Zverev where I just don't know that he's ever going to quite make that jump. I'm not ready to predict him making that jump next year. Uh, but once again, he should be in the mix and I got him finishing number six. At number five is one of the most exciting young talents in the game, somebody who I am very much looking forward to watching play next year. It is Holger Runa. Uh, the last two years for Holger have actually been really similar. There's been about a two-month period in time where he's clearly one of the five best players in the world, which is remarkable because he's been a teenager. There's also been three-month periods of time both two years ago and last year, where uh, he's going to win like three matches total in a span of three months. So there's been a certain unpredictability attached to Holger Runa, not just zooming out in the big picture, but even taking a close look at how some of his matches go. Ultimately, all that said, I just can't imagine a world in which 2024 is not his best year yet. There's just way too much low-hanging fruit for improvement. He's a guy who wants it really, really badly, burning desire, great work ethic, and now surrounded himself with people who know how to get him there. I've been thinking about it a lot, and look, I like the Boris Becker move, and I really like the Severin Luthi move. He's got some very seasoned, experienced uh, people in his camp now. I just feel great about Holger Runa's talent, his team, his desire, and like with all of those things combined, a top five finish for Runa just seems 
almost inevitable. I mean, I could even see him doing better than Medvedev next year, uh, but he does have a lot more to figure out and start getting right compared to Medvedev, who's obviously kind of already there. I don't want to move on without getting to some of the specifics that I think Holgaruna needs to improve on. I mean, ultimately, uh, he needs to get his body a little bit more prepared and work out uh, a stamina issue and also uh, try to avoid any kind of debilitating injury like he seemed to suffer with the back issue. I mean, I don't even know why he was really playing through some of the, the back stuff that he was experiencing. Because I watched him live at the U.S. Open, that match against Roberto Carballes Baena, and uh, he just looked distracted and uncomfortable the whole time, like he didn't even want to be on the court, uh, to which I would ask, why was he? Other than continuing his physical development, uh, I think his coaches need to get him to just feel a little bit more relaxed on the court. That might help his stamina and enable him to play with a little bit more patience. At the end of the day, when he plays patiently, without pushing, uh, he's tremendous. And that's what we saw during the clay court season this year. What I would really like, you know, not that not that he shouldn't be a little bit more aggressive on the quicker surfaces and, you know, utilize the more uh, proactive offensive aspects of his game. But I think he needs to look at when he was most successful last year, which was clay court season, and get him mentally and physically in a place where he can replicate that kind of tennis. It shouldn't be that hard to accomplish. I think Holger can do it. And uh, while I, I do expect some volatility, which is just seemingly a part of who Holger Runa is uh, at this stage in his career, I think ultimately the sum of everything we see this year is going to be better than ever for Runa. And it's just a matter of how high will his high points be. At number four, we're going to Daniil Medvedev. Uh, bounce back year for Medvedev, where he was every bit the player he was in 2021 and the few years prior to that. Uh, but he was able to access a little bit more power on his forehand at times. And I think that really helped him in tournaments like Indian Wells and Rome. My biggest thing for him going into next year is just being able to counter the tactics that his rivals have used to negate his return position. Uh, everyone in my top five is a really good volleyer, a very willing volleyer, and a highly tactical player. Everybody. So Medvedev is going to need an answer if he wants to beat the guys who I have around him. And I'm just not sure he's going to develop it. He doesn't abbreviate his swing very well, so it's hard for him to take the return earlier. Uh, I think he needs to force himself to move up maybe two feet at the start, try to push it to three, then four, then five. Uh, but my guess is he doesn't do it and that he continues to get hurt by serve and volley and serve plus approach by the very best. Uh, Clay is a fun question. His attitude and confidence is obviously going to be better than it's been in the past. Uh, but the, the Vilch match at Roland Garros did expose the fact that there is still a limit to Medvedev's ground stroke power. Uh, that can leave him exposed on the surface, even though he's made improvements. Uh, another strange pattern to watch for is Medvedev's serve in a little bit of a decline. Lowest ace rate since 2018 last year, and his highest double fault rate of 2018 since last year. Uh, I don't really see a logical reason why that's happening, so maybe he's able to turn it around, but it is something that I want to put on everybody's radar. Um, along with the fact that we're almost at age watch for Daniil Medvedev. We are not there yet. 
Uh, he is still just 27 years old. And the overall trend is that players are going to fend off decline into their 30s at this day and age. Uh, but it's not a guarantee. And Daniil Medvedev is the oldest player outside of Djokovic in the top 10. We're almost at the point where we look at Medvedev year to year to year, and the thought starts to enter in your head. Well, like it wouldn't be unheard of if Medvedev does decline at the age that he is. Uh, again, we're not quite there yet, but um, I do like to point out Medvedev's age um, because he is lumped in with a lot of people, frankly, younger than he is oftentimes. At number three is Yannick Sinner. I am pretty much drinking the Kool-Aid with Sinner. Uh, you know, if you, you start to group them with the people above them and I start to say, well, maybe t pump the brakes or at least tap the brakes, but I am definitely high on Sinner going into 2024 after his uh, red hot finish to last year, where uh, if this stat doesn't say it all, he has won seven out of his last eight matches against top five opponents. Physically, he is shown to be more explosive and more durable. He's now a much bigger server with updated technique that just looks phenomenal. Uh, he's a more crafty finisher to go along with his power, whether that be about angles or volleys or more frequent changes of direction. He also probably has the best mental game in the top 10 outside of Novak. He's always locked in. He's a gritty competitor. He plays with good energy. So you look at him now, he's really well-rounded. He's really athletic. He has huge weapons. Everything to me screams top three finish. Where I'm skeptical with Sinner, why maybe I don't vault him even higher and you know, go out on a limb and say that Sinner is about to make uh, a, a mega leap that is reminiscent of the tennis that we saw him play after the U.S. Open last year. Well, here it is. I mean, one, he hasn't really had a moment at a slam that he can even draw confidence from. Uh, there might be a nerve management learning curve for him at majors. I'm not 100% confident that if he plays his first major final this year, that everything is going to go completely smoothly for him in the nerve management department. He does have a history of nerves. He hasn't been there before. So uh, that's where I kind of stand on that. I think there could be a learning curve. And then lastly, um, I, I do take a little bit away from what I see him do indoors. He's always been, a, he's always been great indoors, but He's a little bit more error-prone outside. And a lot of the late-year stuff that we saw in 2023 was under a roof. I need to see him play tough, consistent outdoors next year. I know we can do it. Um, are there going to be matches where the forehand gets a little bit erratic on him? Where he can get a little bit sloppy? Yeah, I, I think that is as of now until he proves me otherwise a part of his game but much less so indoors more so outdoors and i think that's something to watch overall super high on center i got him number three now we are into the top two and at number two no surprises here carlos alcaraz uh this prediction is predicated around the idea that his development and his progress is right on track despite uh, the second half of last year being mildly, 
and I emphasize the word mildly, disappointing. Uh, the reality is if you don't suffer from recency bias, you'll see that Alcaraz uh, kept his development on track. Compared to the year before, he won a higher percentage of his matches, more titles. His major was more impressive. He improved on the, the two main things that I thought he needed to improve on, which was uh, beefing up his first serve and knowing when plus how to play some higher percentage tennis definitely did those two things. And then uh, the third thing that I would say was on his his checklist uh, for last year was just getting accustomed to being at the top and obviously learning how to deal with the pressure of being at the top. And if you look back at last season, it was a mixed bag. There were points in time where it looked like nothing was phasing him, nothing was getting to him. And then there were points in time where it seemed like he became number one, he won Wimbledon, uh, he was trying to be year-end number one, and maybe the the responsibilities of being at the top did have a negative effect on him. But regardless, he learned some valuable lessons along the way, lessons that are really awesome to already get exposure to at 20 years old. So I think for next year, the work on the first serve will continue, but the main point of emphasis is going to be the mental side. Most of the things we talked about with Alcaraz losing matches last year came down to two things, nerve management and focus. It's almost amazing that for a guy so young, those are the things that you can really look at. And physically, there's not much to talk about. Technically, there's very little to talk about. I mean, you have to rack your brain. And if I had to pick one, I mean, I guess the the main question I have about his racket skills is uh, the reliability of his forehand as it was bulletproof in the first half of last year. And then it was kind of up and down, hot and cold in the second half of last year. So what will we see next year out of the Carlos Alcaraz's forehand? What kind of consistency will it bring? Uh, overall, nothing has changed for me. I love his natural assets. I love his completeness. I love his attitude. I love his team. And I have another year-end number two finish for Carlos Alcaraz. It would be the second consecutive year. As for the number one spot, the top spot. I predict number nine for Novak Djokovic finishing at year-end number one. Let me start with what impressed me most about Djokovic's season last year. His forehand to my eyes was bigger than ever. His volleying was better than ever. His first serve dominance, which has been excellent since 2021, uh, remained the class of the entire ATP tour. And statistically, he led the tour in hold percentage. And yet another year went by where there was no visible physical decline compared to recent years. Like, yeah, if you compare it to his physical prime, you can see something there. But if you compare it to dominant years, like even 2021, there's no decline happening. And that is all besides the fact that, as has been the case for the last five, six, seven, maybe even eight years now, there is nobody you trust more mentally than Novak Djokovic. So we're in this weird place of knowing that father time starts to deliver some blows eventually, but also seeing zero evidence that that is starting to happen at this moment in time. Here's my thing with Djokovic. It's been my thing for quite, for, you know, quite a few years now. 
I'm going to back him as long as I feel he's going to be motivated. I have long predicted that Djokovic's decline is going to likely begin with some kind of feeling and sense that he is satisfied. But I think until he's satisfied, he's going to continue to play at the highest level. He's going to continue to motivate himself uh, to operate uh, with the, the level of discipline that has enabled him to completely defy the laws of aging. And this year, I have little doubts that he is going to keep the fire burning, given the Olympics are likely going to be a North Star for him. I think they're going to drive him just like they drove him in 2021. And yeah, you know, there was a little bit of a collapse after he didn't win the Olympics. But uh, remember how good he was before the Olympics because he was so laser focused, so sharp, so motivated leading up to that point. Well, yeah, I think we're going to see that again. And I also believe the battles with Alcaraz and Sinner really excite him, partially because they are so much younger. So Novak is my number one yet again. I'll end with some overarching thoughts on my predictions and kind of where we're at right now on the ATP Tour. I mean, this was an interesting year to do this because on one hand, it felt like the easiest and most confident year ever. I mean, you guys know, if you recall, I usually start these videos by just moaning and groaning about how hard this is and how I just, these decisions feel impossible. Well, this year I didn't do that. Because it didn't feel like that. On the other hand, part of me hates my picks because they are kind of boring and unrealistically stagnant. I don't know if you guys noticed this. You probably did. But I have this, the top eight staying the top eight. In fact, I have the top nine staying the top nine. And guess what? That's not going to happen. I don't think that's ever happened. Um... But it, it kind of, you start to go in circles with yourself because while you say, well, that's that's impossible, that's not going to happen, what also isn't going to happen is you're going to get every pick right. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm just going to kind of go in with what I feel each and every spot. I couldn't convince myself to, to come up with anything more uh, volatile or more dramatic or more interesting than, than what I ended up coming up with. And I just am kind of surrendering myself to the idea that the current one rate just feels really, really solid. Last year, I talked about how everyone in the top 10 was either young or a goat. Well, the same is pretty true this year, except there's even more experience in the bunch. The vast majority of players in the top 10 right now, as we head into 2024, have finished in the top 10 two straight years or more. One of them, you look at a guy in Zverev, and it's so clear that without injury, he'd be on a streak of like, I don't know, seven years in a row finishing in the top 10. There's only two guys who don't have multiple top 10 finishes under their belt coming into next year, and that is Sinner and Runa, who I would argue are both tier one prospects. So it's no wonder why... I'm predicting a crazy amount of stability and borderline stagnation in the top 10 in 2024. 
That said, I don't think this is going to be a boring year. Uh, this top eight jockeying for position and for titles is going to be fun. Even if I don't think there's going to be a lot of movement into the club and out of the club, so to speak. It's also going to be really interesting to me what happens 9 through 15. As you heard at the beginning of this video, uh, there are 7-8 players who I feel like could finish top 10 without me being all that surprised. And there are a lot of really intriguing wild cards. Uh, players on the outside looking in and you wonder what they do next, such as Casper Ruud and Felix Ojealiasim and Nick Kyrgios. And even guys who I didn't mention in this video, like a Denis Shapovalov. So, hey, uh, I can't wait for the season to begin. I can't wait to see how this all plays out. And I can't wait for another year of Monday match analysis. Last bit of housekeeping before I wrap things up. Uh, the preseason mailbag post will be posted in the YouTube community tab by the time I post this video. So make sure if you want to get involved, check out the YouTube community tab and contribute to the mailbag. That's all I got. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.